If you've got a Bible this morning, open to Revelation chapter 5. We are starting the new year with a deep dive. And so this morning, man, I hope you got some sleep last night in, in the midst of fireworks and football games and food. And anybody dieting this, this week, anybody started their, their, their diet as of today, my wife says, no, not going to do it. We still got like Christmas cookies and all that stuff at our house. Thank you, mom, for bringing buckets of Christmas cookies over. Uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I've done some deep dive in the last couple of weeks, but unfortunately it's been in the cookie jar, not in the Bible as much as probably I need to be. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to shift gears, man, and get back into our study in Revelation right out of the chute uh, for the next couple of weeks, Revelation chapter 5. And if you're joining us uh, maybe for the first time online or in the room, or maybe you haven't been here in a couple of weeks, let me remind you, we have begun a, a study of a lifetime, really, through the book of Revelation. God gave us this book uh, that many people are fearful to read, they're fearful to study, they're fearful to, to truly understand what it, what it really means for us, and yet... In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, God tells us that we're blessed if we read it and keep the words of this prophecy. There's a blessing associated with the book of Revelation. It is a book that God intends for us, just like all of Scripture, to understand and apply properly to our life. Revelation chapter 1, we saw the introduction that Jesus Christ revealed these things to the Apostle John. And these, 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 these things about the Revelation are about his revelation, his second coming, his earthly kingdom, and all of eternity future. It's all about him. And so we saw that in Revelation chapter 1. In in chapters 2 and 3, we read that Christ wrote seven letters to seven churches. And these letters were from Christ himself to seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor, God didn't write to seven Christians. God didn't write to seven parachurch organizations. He wrote to seven local churches because God always works through a local church. That's why you need to be a part of one. That's why you need to be connected to a local body. And and those of you that may be watching at home, man, we miss our church family that's not here, but some of you watch and never connect to a local body. And God wants you connected to a local body because that's what he works through. And so historically, there are seven churches that existed, but doctrinally, there are seven churches that will show up in the, in the tribulation period. And, and, and you would say, and I would say, well, look, the church doesn't go through the tribulation. It doesn't go through the tribulation period. And that is true as the body of Christ. I don't believe we're going to go through the tribulation, but, but God called in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, in the Old Testament, God called Israel a church in the wilderness. And, and he called it a church, and so that's what it was. And we don't have to correct God's words. It was a church in the wilderness, and yet that church was not saved because there was no new birth in the Old Testament. That church was not spirit-filled and sealed like we are as the body of Christ. That church in the wilderness was not the body of Christ, and they weren't bought by the blood of Christ. And yet God called them a church. And so doctrinally, you need to know like we've already studied, that those seven churches in Revelation do represent doctrinally, prophetically, a group of probably Jews that are going to exist in the tribulation period. And, and, and just like in the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel called out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness that, that God called that a church. The same thing is going to happen in the tribulation period. But, but devotionally, those seven churches represent 
seven types of churches that have existed in all through church history. And we studied those seven churches extensively. And we said, you know what? There's positive things and negative things about each of those churches. And we would do well to see what type of church we really are. And as we compare ourselves to those seven churches, man, I, I think prophetically, again, we, we live in that Laodicean church period, the last church that's mentioned, but we don't have to be a Laodicean church. I'm glad one of you believe that. It may be because we have a room full of Laodicean Christians. I don't know. We don't have to be a Laodicean church. And we don't have to be Laodicean Christians. And and it's worthy for us to understand that even though at the end of time, at the end of the church age, we don't have to give ourselves over to the spirit of the age. We can do what God's called us to do and be that Philadelphian church that God put an open door in front of to get the gospel to the world. I hope that's your heart. It's certainly God's heart. And then in Revelation chapter 4, John is caught up. The Bible says that he, he was caught up. He heard a voice that said, come up hither in Revelation 4 and verse 1. And, and he was relocated spiritually to the third heaven, above the stars, above the sun and the moon, above outer space, into the very throne room of God. And as John witnessed what very few people have seen, He begins to unpack and unfold for us the colors that he saw in that throne room. He talked about the Sardin stone, that that that, that stone represents the the first stone of the high priest's garment. It's connected with Reuben, and he he saw this jasper color, and that's associated with the last stone of the high priest's garment, Benjamin, and it all points to Christ. And he begins to unfold for us what he's seeing in this throne room, and it really is just the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he saw these 20 and four elders and he saw these four beasts and he heard this worship that was going on that never ceases in the third heaven. Man, it's all about the throne. And because John was seeing all of creation and heaven above focused on the throne, we learned that that ought to be our focus. It ought to be our focus, the worship of God and the one that sits on the throne is worthy of our worship and worthy of our focus. Even those 24 elders, man, they're thanking God. They're falling down before the throne. They're casting their crowns because God himself is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And man, finally, in the book of Revelation, Christ gets what he deserves. And and that's why a lot of people don't like the book of Revelation. Because Christ gets what he deserves. And by the way, sinful man gets what he deserves. And the devil gets what he deserves. And this wicked, corrupt earth and the nations of this world that hate Christ, they get what they deserve too. That's why this book, man, you don't mess with this book. You mess with this book, it'll mess you up. God gets exactly what he deserves and this world gets exactly what it deserves. And lost man that rejects Christ gets exactly what they deserve in the book of Revelation. Not too much preaching out of the book of Revelation these days. And so all of that introduction leads us now to Revelation chapter 5. And I just want to remind you that as we we get into Revelation chapter 5, we are still before the throne. John is still in the throne room of God. And and again, what I did in in five minutes was give you about 33 sermons (laughs) in five minutes. And so you're welcome. 
You still need to go back and listen to those, and, and maybe that'd be an encouragement to you. But, but we get to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to read the first four verses. John is still in the throne room of God. It says this, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth nor under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereupon. Let's pray together. Father, we need you this morning, God. I pray as we begin this new year, Lord, help us to see what you would want us to see. Help us to see that there is power in your throne. There's words that are so important in your throne. And ultimately, your son that's worthy is in your throne. And God, point us with the right perspective. As we begin this year, God, teach us from your word. Help us to be challenged and to be more like Christ. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, as we begin, man, we are still in the third heaven with the Apostle John, and we're before the throne, and, and we're with John. And, and remember that John has been translated, if you will. Man, his physical address was still on the Isle of Patmos. But remember that spiritually, John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And, and so God has transported him, has translated him, prophetically to the day of the Lord, which is a very, a very specific time and phrase found in the Scripture. Spiritually, John is present on the day of the Lord, and remember that John is tasked to write the things that he has seen, past tense, that represents the church age, and he's, he's tasked to write the things that are, and that would be the things associated with the day of the Lord, the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. And then he's tasked to write the things that shall be hereafter, the second coming and the, and the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth. And as we get into chapter 5, there's a phrase that shows up eight times in this chapter. And so when God repeats something, I think Colin uses this illustration, man, it's like God's turning the volume up, right? When you hear, it's like your mom and dad. You hear it once, and that ought to be enough. Right, teens? Okay. Right, mamas? <laughs> One time ought to be enough, but the second, third, fourth, and by the way, if God's got to say it eight times, just like your parents, he's like, okay, this is the point, right? And so this word, book, is found eight times in this chapter. It's all about a book. It's all about the book. Whatever this chapter is about, it's focused on this book. And this book has significance through the rest of the book of Revelation. So let's get into your notes this morning. Number one, the location of the book. Verse one says, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, listen, a book. And remember, John has just given us a full perspective of everything that he's witnessed in chapter four. He's seen the throne, he's seen the rainbow, the emerald, he's seen the four beasts and the 24 elders, he's heard amazing things, and now in chapter 5, he, he focuses on and sees a book, and that book is in a very unique place. It's in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, and so here's the key in your notes. Listen, the right hand, specifically of this throne, 
Man, it's a very special place in Scripture. Actually, you would do well to do a study of the right hand of God through the Word of God. Because this place is significant in the Word of God. Exodus 15 and verse 6. Remember, Israel was delivered out of Egypt in the Exodus through the blood of the Lamb. And remember in Exodus 15 and verse 6, as they're worshiping God because of His goodness, they say, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And, and you need to know that God's right hand is a hand of power. It's a hand of deliverance. Psalm, Psalm 20 and verse 6 says this, Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven, that's the third heaven, and with the saving strength of his, of his right hand. You see, God's right hand is powerful. God's right hand has the ability to save us because it's full of strength. Psalm 118, verses 14 to 16 says, The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. Aren't you thankful, man? Man, aren't you thankful for God's salvation? The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Psalm, Psalm 16 and verse 11, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I'm telling you, man. And, and by the way, aren't those the things that we look for? I mean, aren't, aren't, aren't all humans looking for direction in life? Aren't we? We don't know what to do. And many times, man, we're asking God, show us the right way. Well, listen, God gives us the path of life in a very specific place. It's from his right hand. And, and aren't we looking for joy, man? We are. And, and maybe you got what you wanted for Christmas, and, and I hope you did. But listen, at the end of the day, whatever joy you got from that temporal gift is going to wear off. It's going to break. It's going to stop working. And man, your joy will, will be left unfulfilled. And maybe your team won yesterday, and that's awesome. And man, your joy is but for a moment, and it's just going to vanish until next year when they get beat, and Alabama wins it all. I mean, I'm just saying. Okay, so, so, so I'm just trying to help you. I'm preparing you for next year, okay, or for this year. And so, and so here's the point. We, we look for the purpose and direction in life. We look for joy. We consume ourselves with pursuing pleasure. And yet... God tells us in his word that the very place we can find all of those things are at the right hand of God. It's in a right place, and it's, it's in a right person. And, and here's, the, here's the key, and I, and I know most of you know this in this room. Man, the right hand of God is a special place because here's the second key. Christ is seated there. And because the right hand of God is the very place of Christ, all the things that you're looking for are there. That's where it's at, because that's where he's at. Uh, I get a little confused, man, when people tell me they see Jesus like walking down the street, you know, or Jesus came and visited me and told me this and told me that. And I, and I, I get a little kind of confused on that, because the Bible says that after Christ ascended, that he sat down on the right hand of God. 
He sat down on the right hand of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that he's risen again, who is even at, where is he? Man, he's at the right hand of God. And he maketh intercession for us. Do you see how powerful that right hand of God is? Christ is seated there. And you ought to be encouraged because right now, intercession is being made for you at the right hand of God. That's something to be thankful for. That's something that God is worthy of worship for. And man, listen, like John, that's something to focus on. We need to be focused on the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. Listen, in the heavenly places, in the third heaven, that's where he's at. And so because that's where Christ is, that's where we ought to be looking. Man, not looking at the things of this world, not being enamored and enticed with the lust of this world and, and the things that this world has to offer. Colossians chapter 3 says that we need to seek the things which are above, by the way, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That's where all of it points to. And that's where our heart's desire ought to be pointed to. And, and so listen, and I got a ton more verses, but you're not listening fast enough because you're still waking up from New Year's. Listen. Hebrews, there's, there's other verses in Hebrews and 1 Peter and, and Psalm 110. we got to look at Psalm 110 and verses 1 and 2, Old Testament prophecy concerning Christ. Look what it says. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, and the next word is really important, until. So Christ is seated at God's right hand, but not permanently. He says, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thy enemies. And, and so listen again, you already catch it, man, that the right hand of God is important because it's a place of blessing and strength and power and salvation. It's where Christ is seated. And in that right hand, man, John sees a book. There's something special about that book. And, and what's special about it is where it's located. It's located in the right hand of God. And, and then number two, I want to share with you the uniqueness of this book. If you go back to verse one, it says this. It says that this book is written, and it's written on the backside, excuse me, it's written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And, and again, we're, we're only going to get four verses in today, and you've got to come back next week. But, but listen, this book is so unique. Number one, it's a comprehensive book because the Bible says that whatever this book is that's in the right hand of God Almighty, it is comprehensive. It's written within and on the backside. It's not like your LFBI term paper that you have to turn in, one-sided, double-spaced with 14-point 14, 14 font. Do you understand? It is I know some of you are taking classes right now, and if I just make the font bigger, maybe I can fudge my grade. Okay, listen, this is a comprehensive book. I mean, it's, there's no wasted space. Every inch of space is needful for what's being written and recorded. It, it's two-sided and full. And then number two, it's a closed book because the Bible says that this book is sealed with seven seals. Now, now, you have to do a little bit of study in the Bible, but as you compare that word sealed 
through the Scriptures, what you find is many times in the Bible, important documents were sealed by those in high authority. In other words, it wouldn't be uncommon as you read the Bible for a king to write out something of importance and then as he rolled up that scroll or or whatever document type it was, he would seal it with wax and seal it with his ring. And the reason it was sealed was, number one, because it came from a higher authority and two, it was sealed so that the words could not be changed. And so that's very interesting. Let me give you a few examples of that, right? First Kings 21 and verse 8. The context of this is Jezebel, and she's writing letters in her husband's name, Ahab's name. And the Bible says in verse 8, she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and she sealed them with his seal. Ahab was the king. Now listen, he was a wicked king. He wasn't a good king. You don't want to be like Ahab. You definitely, you, you, nobody in this room will have a daughter and ever name her Jezebel, right? I mean, everybody just, know, even if you've not read the Bible, you just know that's, we're not, that's not even on the list of names. And if your name is Jezebel in this room, God bless you. I'd pray for your parents. Okay, so, I mean, just nobody does that, right? Because they know this is a wicked woman. It's a wicked king. But listen, she's writing letters to illegally acquire Naboth's vineyard, if you, if you know the context of this story. And again, Ahab is a wicked king. He's a picture of the Antichrist. Jezebel is a picture of a false religious system. But when she wrote those letters, she sealed it with his seal. And if you read the story, well, Naboth got killed because a higher authority sealed these words, right? Esther is another example. In, in, in the book of Esther, uh, this wicked man named Haman uh, desired letters to destroy the Jews from King Ahasuerus. In Esther chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Then when the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and the governors that were over every province, to the rulers of every people of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written. And it was sealed with the king's ring. And the point is, it's a higher authority. And if you've read Esther, you know that once that decree was made, even though, even though the king was married to Esther, those words couldn't be changed. They were sealed. They were, they were unchangeable because they came from the highest authority. Even in Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, verse 17, the Bible says a stone was bought and laid on the mouth of the den. Remember the Daniel and the lion's den. And the king sealed it. He sealed that cave with, with his own signet and the signet of his lords that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. And so this seven-sealed book that John sees in the right hand of God Almighty on the throne of God, it's a closed book. It's closed. And it's not just sealed one time or two times or three times. It's sealed seven times. Well, in your Bible, seven, and here's the key in your notes, look, seven is the number of completion or perfection. And and as we study the book of Revelation, we've already seen seven churches. And that's interesting. God God could have wrote about as many churches as he wanted in Revelation 2 and 3, but he wrote about seven. Why did he write about seven? Because that's all that needed to be written about. 
It's perfect. It's complete. God's number seven is the number of completion and perfection. And so, and so this book is completely and perfectly sealed. And as we'll get into the text, it's so sealed that no man can open it. That's powerful. And, and so not, not only is it a comprehensive book and a, and, a, and a closed book, but number three, it's a curious book. And here's where we kind of get into the meat of the message because everybody wants to say, here's what I think this book is, right? Here's what I think this, this book is. And, and, and listen, as, as you study this out and you read men that, that love God and love his word, man, there are many godly men who have made many a determination of what they think this book is. And, and some even go as far as to say, well, I don't even know if you can know what this book is. Some people say it's the book of Revelation itself. And, and, and listen, there is some valid reasons for that. And so, and again, in your notes, I'm going to give you kind of the options that are, that are on the table. Some would say it's the book of Revelation because as these seals are being opened and as John is witnessing it, well, well that's actually what John is writing. And John is writing what is being revealed through the opening of those seven seals. And listen, that is true. But yet, we also have Revelation chapters 1 through 4 that are part of the book of Revelation. And, 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 and as you see those seven seals unfolded, there's no mention of what we've already studied in Revelation chapters 1 through 4. Does that make sense? Are you guys okay? It's like, if it's the book of Revelation, what about the stuff that isn't mentioned when the seals are opened? That, that's my point. And, and, and so maybe it is the book of Revelation. I personally don't think it's the book of Revelation. And, and listen, some men, godly men, that, men that I respect and love say, hey, listen, maybe it's the Bible itself. Maybe it's the Bible itself. That seven-sealed book is the complete Word of God itself. And you need to understand that that Bible, unless God opens it, you're, you're not going to understand it. The Word of God is a sealed book. It's sealed in the sense that the Spirit of God has to reveal the Word of God to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 says, We've not received the Spirit of the world, but we've received the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us to God. And as we go through that passage, verse 14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He can't even know them. They're foolishness unto him because they're spiritually discerned. And, and listen, the Bible is a book that, man, you can break your neck on. And the reason you can break your neck on it is because you can come at it with man's wisdom. You can come at it with ancient languages. You can come at it with academia. You can come at it with a prideful attitude. And you'll never understand what it really means. That book will be as close to you as a seven-seal scroll. Isaiah 29, verses 9 to 12, again, there's, a, there's an interesting Old Testament passage that talks about, in verse 11, the vision of all. And some people believe that that vision of all is the entirety of the Bible. It's become unto you as words of a book that is sealed. And men deliver it to one that's learned. You know, the educated crowd saying, read this, I pray thee. And the learned man, he saith, I, I can't read it because it's sealed. It sounds like a lot of Bible college professors. Well, here's, here's what I think it means, and here's what everybody else says it is, but, but nobody can actually say what it means. I'm educated, but it's a sealed book. 
And then in verse 12, the book is delivered to him that's not learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he said, uh, I can't read it, I'm not learned. And in either case, the book is sealed. You see, education can't open this book. False piety can't open this book. Only God can open this book. Now, the problem I have with saying that Revelation chapter 5 and the seven seals are the Bible in its entirety is the fact that men have already been understanding the Word of God well before Revelation chapter 5. That the Spirit of God has revealed truth from His Word to generations of people, both Old Testament and New Testament. And so it's not completely locked to that point in time and place. I mean, the Old Testament saints understood the Scriptures, and they understood it through the power of the Spirit of God. The New Testament church understood it through the power of the Spirit of God. And so that book is not closed to children of God. And so what are we left with? Well, I believe, is again, and you study it out and come to your own conclusion, but I believe what we have here is possibly the prophecy of Daniel completing itself in the book of Revelation. And again, those other, those other possibilities are maybe right. Again, man, I, I, I'm not critical of anybody that lands there because they have reasons that they land there. But I will tell you that in the book of Daniel, there is something that's revealed from God that's sealed until a certain time. Revelate, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. It says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, the nation of Israel, and upon thy holy city, Jerusalem, to, fulfill, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And again, we don't have time to, to get into Daniel this morning. I, I wish we could. We probably will next week. But listen, there is this prophecy that God reveals to Daniel about these 70 weeks. And there's something unique that happens in Daniel chapter 12, Verses 1 to 4, as God reveals this revelation to Daniel, he says in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even till the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel 12 and verse 9, he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till... The time of the end. And so whatever God gave Daniel in his prophecy in the book of Daniel, and listen, there's a lot of things that he gave Daniel. There are some things that God said, hey, listen, we're going to seal those things up. But we're only going to seal them till the end. And then they'll be unsealed. And again, man, you say, okay, well, what does that mean? What is the time of the end? What is the time that he's talking about. Well, I don't know, but when you read Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, it says at the end of that promise of blessing, it does say that the time is at hand. Revelation 22 and verse 10, as John closes out the book, he says, verse 10, he said unto me, seal not the sayings of this prophecy of the book, for the time is at hand. And, and I don't know, man, God, God just has a, a time appointed where these seals are going to be opened. And what's in them are going to be revealed. And again, man, as I study the Scripture, I feel like what we see in that seven-sealed book is really the fulfillment of what God promised concerning those 70 weeks and the fulfillment of, of God's restoration, not only of, of Israel, but the earth. And, and we can talk more about that. Here's what I know. 
These book, this book and these seals are unique. They're closed until a pointed time. And number one, they have something to do with the earth. As you read this passage and you read Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 7 and 8 and 9, these seals have something to do with the earth. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I read Revelation chapter 6. <laughs> that comes after chapter 5. <laughs> and in Revelation chapter 6, they begin to open the seals, right? Verse 1, I saw the lamb open one of the seals. And again, there, there's this great white horse. And if you're in your Bible, man, you can see all this stuff. But look at verse 4, Revelation 6, verse 4. There went out another horse that was red, and power was given him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. So whatever is happening as these seals are opening, it has to do with the earth and God's judgment on the earth. Verse 8. I looked and there was a pale horse and the name that sat on him was death and hell followed him and power was given him over the fourth part of the earth to kill, to, to kill with a sword and with hunger and with death and the beast of the earth. And so again, man, all you have to do is read the next few chapters and these seals have something to do with the earth. And then secondly, you notice they have something to do with God's judgment. Because as you read those seven seals, and we're going to spend our due time and diligence as we get into those chapters, unpacking and exposing what God's Word says. Can I just tell you, man, God's judgment is being poured out on this earth. It has everything to do with His judgment. And then number three, listen, this book and these seals have something to do with God's wrath. And, and listen, man, you want to be on the right side of God's wrath. And the only way that you're on the right side of God's wrath today is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's no religion that can save you. There's no work that you can do to be saved. There's nothing that you can do to appease God's wrath. Christ did it through his sacrifice and through his shed blood. You don't want to be on the wrong side of his wrath. And listen, what we see in Revelation is people and places and nations and kings that are on the wrong side of it. And man, he unpacks it and unfolds it and unveils it on this earth. And it is a great pouring out of his wrath. And then lastly, this book and these seals have something to do with God's day. And can I just tell you, everything in these seven seals and everything in this book have to happen so that Christ gets his rightful place on the throne in his kingdom. It's all about him. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 11, verse 15, it says the seventh angel sounded. And that seventh angel is connected to that seventh seal. And there, was a great there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so whatever that book is and whatever those seven seals are, man, it has to happen. And the reason it has to happen is because those are the things that set up Christ receiving the kingdom that he's worthy of. You say, man, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, how do you feel about it? I mean, is he worthy? And, 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 and listen... It is interesting because I know uh, what a way to start the new year. Let's talk about the trib and God pouring out his judgment and wrath on the earth. And, 
well, that's fun, isn't it? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, but can I, can I maybe change your perspective uh, prayerfully? Those are the things that put Christ on his throne. Those are the things that have to happen in order for Christ to get the maximum glory that he's due. Man, that's a unique book in that right hand. And then in verse, verses 2 and 3, we see there's a problem with this book. Verse 2 says this, and so John says, okay, I see the book, and it's seven sealed, it's written within and without, and then verse 2 says this, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth nor under the earth was able to open the book and to look thereupon. And, and so there's this strong angel that John hears, and he's proclaiming with a loud voice, we're looking for somebody worthy. Who can open this book? And so in your notes, number one, the proclaimer, man, who is this strong angel? Who is this, this strong angel proclaiming these things? And, and as we study the Bible, man, there are a couple of angels mentioned by name in the Bible. Maybe it's Gabriel. And again, question mark behind that. Gabriel is a messenger that God used to make announcements, to, to reveal things. You find Gabriel in the book of Daniel. You find him in Luke chapter 1 as he's, he's visiting John the Baptist's father, Zacharias. He, he's bringing good tidings. He's bringing messages. He's used by God. But there's another angel. He's actually the archangel named Michael. And the Bible says in Jude in verse 9 that Michael... He's the archangel. And Michael contended with the devil. And, and, and again, we're talking about a strong angel. And, and, and is there varying strengths of angels? That's a very interesting question. That's the question I ask. Like, I'm okay, if there's a strong angel, does that mean they're weak angels? I mean, did, did some angels skip leg day and other angels did not skip leg day? I mean, how does, how does that shake out, right? I do know that Michael... When we study the scripture about Michael, again, it says that he contended with the devil. That's, that's pretty gutsy. You've got to have some strength. It also says in Daniel, chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, that this messenger was coming to Daniel with a message. Possibly Gabriel, right? He's coming to Daniel from God with a message. And the Bible says in verse 13 that the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood him prevented him from getting to Daniel with the message. But then it says, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. And, and again, I don't want to read into it too much, but, but if Gabriel was the guy with the message to Daniel, he got sidetracked. He got, he got withheld, and another angel had to show up to help him. And the guy that just happened to show up was a guy named Michael, a strong angel. You find Michael associated with the second coming of Christ. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, Michael. And with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so there's this connection with the rapture of the church, the calling up of the saints. There's a connection with Michael and, and, and the rapture and the second coming, there's a connection with Michael and a loud voice. And whatever you, whatever, wherever you land, whatever. But there is a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice in Revelation chapter 5, who is worthy. Which leads to your next blank, the proclamation. 
Because here's the problem. Nobody was worthy to open the book. And and man, it's perplexing to to Michael if that's who it is. And it's perplexing to John and, and, and nobody in heaven above, man. He asked the question, who's worthy to open the book and to loosen the seals? And he He gives the answer. John gives us the answer. Number one, there's no man in heaven that's worthy. And can I just tell you, like historically, John was on the Isle of Patmos in 90 AD. And Christ has already ascended to heaven. He's already taken all the Old Testament saints with him to heaven. Can you think of everyone in the Old Testament who was a mighty man of God who possibly would have been worthy I mean, you got guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You got men like Joseph, who no sin is mentioned in the Word of God. You got men like David and Daniel himself. And man, listen, amongst all those men in heaven already, there was nobody worthy. And listen, doctrinally, John is at the point where the rapture of the church prophetically has already happened. And can you think about all the great men of God, the godly men that have lived since 90 AD, whom God has used to take the gospel to the world and to plant churches and make disciples and even translate God's word from language to language? Man, there have been some mighty men, some holy men that loved God, some great preachers and teachers of God's word that are already in heaven today. They loved Christ. They honored Christ with their life. They lived in a way that brought honor and glory to the Lord. And yet as John looked around heaven, nobody was worthy. And then he says, there's no man in the earth. And listen, again, historically in John's day, there would have been great men in the earth. There would have been scholars and rulers and religious leaders and wealthy men and strong men and great military minds and great political minds and great scientists and great men of wisdom, even great men of stature and beauty. And man, as as they look in the earth, they say, no man's worthy. No man's worthy to open that book. You think about the great men that are on this earth right now. And there are some great men. Men of renown. Men of extreme intellect. Men of extreme wealth. Men of extreme academia. Great men of God still on this earth. And as John looks, he's like, there's nobody worthy to open this book. Pastor Mark Trotter says this in his Revelation series. The question wasn't who's willing to open the book. Because there are a lot of men that think they are willing to open the book. The question is who's worthy. A lot of men probably are willing. We've got some audacious political leaders and religious leaders that probably have enough gall to try. The problem is they're not worthy. And then he says in the same text that no man under the earth is worthy. And what he's talking about are the men and the women that are in hell right now. But can I just tell you, listen, there are some great men that are in hell right now. 
They were great according to the wisdom of this world and the measure of this world. They were wise men in this world. They were great-minded men, great military men, great politicians, wealthy men, great scientists, men of renown. And all of those men that have ever lived and ever will live that have rejected Christ and are in hell today, none of them are worthy to open the book. So that that leaves us with a big problem. (laughs) Because here's a book, and man, that book, as we've read in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, listen, it has everything to do with the earth, and it has everything to do with God's judgment, and it has everything to do to get Christ where he needs to get to receive the maximum glory. And there's nobody worthy to open it. Look at verse 4. We'll close with this. The weeping over the book. Look at verse 4. We'll leave you with a cliffhanger this week. The Bible says, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereupon. I mean, listen, John does something that he hasn't done at this point all the way in the book of Revelation. I mean, he's just come out of chapter 4. He's explained this, this amazing scene in the throne of God. He's blown away by what he sees, what he hears the worship that that is before the throne. And then when he gets to verse 4, listen, when nobody is found to open the book, he doesn't breathe a sigh of relief and say, thank God, man. Thank God that that book's not open. He, He doesn't rejoice that God's judgment and wrath isn't unleashed on the earth. He doesn't shout out out loud that the long suffering of God He doesn't shout that it, man, the long-suffering God goes on just a little longer because that book's not opened. You know what John does? He weeps. You see, John wasn't satisfied with unfinished business. John wasn't satisfied with Christ not getting the maximum glory that he deserves. John wasn't satisfied that all of the prophecy of Scripture was yet to be fulfilled. And listen, if that book doesn't get opened, then the prophecy doesn't get fulfilled. Then Daniel doesn't really, if it is the book of Daniel, and the prophecy in Daniel, man, it doesn't get opened and fulfilled. And listen, if it doesn't get opened and fulfilled, John wasn't satisfied that the kingdoms of this earth were not yet become the kingdoms of Christ. He wept. So here's the question. What moves you to tears? What truly moves you to tears? And I, I got to pick on you a little bit, but man, does your, does your favorite ball team losing move you to tears, right? Okay. Does not getting what you want for Christmas move you to tears? Do, do the, the, the nuances of our brief life move you to tears? And listen, there, there are painful things in life, no doubt. But can I just tell you, the thing that moved John to tears was the fact that if this book is not open, Christ is not going to get seated on his throne where he rightly deserves to be. If this book does not get open, man, Christ is not going to receive all the glory and the honor and the power that he deserves today. Man, does that move you to tears? I know, I know who I'm talking to, man, and I know I'm talking to me too. 
I just don't see a lot of Christians really getting emotional over the fact that Christ is still not giving the glory he deserves. I don't see a lot of Christians weeping today because the book of Revelation didn't be fulfilled. Today. I mean, listen, do you, and this is a weird statement, but does the fact that Christ's righteous wrath is not yet poured out on sinful men in this sinful world who blaspheme and curse him and reject him, man, does that not move you to tears? Now listen, the reason it doesn't is because we view that through the lens of our benefit. Well, I don't, I don't want the Lord to come back yet. I got stuff to do. I need to get married. I need to have kids. I need to finish school. I need to get a job. I need to buy the new PlayStation or the new Xbox. Man, I got to get the new phone. I got to get the new stuff. I got to get the new house, a bigger house, better cars. And can I just, again, challenge us? Sometimes we get more consumed with that and concerned with that than we do Christ's glory. Let me ask it like this. And you've read Revelation 5, many of you, so you know who opens the book. Here's the question. Is Christ worthy to open the book? Is he worthy to open it today? Is he worthy to receive the maximum glory from all of creation today? And that includes you and me, brother and sister. Is he worthy to establish his kingdom on this earth? And is he worthy to get all the glory and all the honor and all the power that he deserves today? And of course, the answer to all of that is, yeah. The question is, does does he deserve that in your life? Is he worthy? Man, listen, next week, I'm going to leave you hanging this week. But listen, he does deserve it, and he is worthy. And next week, you need to come back so you can see how this thing unfolds. But for us today, man, what is it that drives us to tears? Does the glory of God bring us to a point of weeping where we want to see Christ magnified not, not, not later, after I get all my stuff done? Do I, know, do I want to see him glorified today? And if the answer to that is yes, again, as we come to the book of Revelation, like John, we'll sorrow and weep until Christ gets his maximum glory. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. Father, we, we need you this morning, God. We thank you for your word. and.